the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon, at both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. In episode 21, some of the science that can be done on the moon. Geophysics is one. Pure physics and relativity is another. Flammability in lunar gravity. What are the knowledge gaps that, if filled, would allow transformative research? This first talk was given in February of 2021. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I am Ernie Bell. I'm currently finishing up my PhD in geophysics at the University of Maryland. Uh, previously, though, I was an EVA flight controller at JFC. I worked with both Alex and Jackie. Um, for this presentation, so first off, what is geophysical data and why do we need to conduct geophysical investigations on the moon? Well, geophysical data includes identification of stratigraphic layers of the subsurface, determining various physical, mechanical, and electromagnetic properties, and also looking at heat flow characteristics. Geophysical data can also help to identify and characterize natural resources such as volatiles and looking at mechanical or structural type resources. So how does this fit in with the objectives of the Artemis program? Um, by acquiring these types of data sets, which I've just mentioned and others, we can help to understand the planetary processes of volcanism, tectonics, regolith creation, as well as overall planetary formation. Uh, we can help to characterize and determine the origin of polar volatiles, understand the impact history of the Earth-Moon system. In addition, this data can be used to investigate and mitigate various exploration risks. So now I just want to provide a few examples of the types of geophysical studies that we perform on Earth. They include um, things such as magnetometry. I have examples of both active and passive variations of seismic studies. You'll see some 3D laser or LIDAR mapping of geologic features. And then there's also gravimetry, radar sounding that we performed in the field. Cynthia Evans works in the Johnson Space Center's Astromaterials Research and Exploration Science Division. In February of 2021, she described the GeoLab. 
So um, the current architecture plans for sustained lunar operations include an Artemis base camp around 2030 that'll have a foundational surface habitat that we call the FISH with science outfitting. There'll be mobility for astronauts, both unpressurized and pressurized rovers, and then the capabilities for EVAs. And right now the plans are talking about 30 to 60 day missions for humans with the potential for sustained robotic operations for the rest of the year. So there's lots of opportunity for science team involvement for extended lunar missions. There's going to be crew traverses, sample collection, habitat-based science, robotic traverses, and the potential to collect a whole lot of geological samples, potentially exceeding the return mass. So sample prioritization may be required. So we did tests about 10 years ago, Desert Rats, and um, part of the tests between 2010 and 2012 included a habitat demonstration unit um, that was uh, simulated sustained operations. And so it was a habitat that had science outfitting in it. We had a glove box we called Geolab that was integrated into the habitat, and I'm going to talk about that. A Geolab, it was fully integrated into the habitat structure, that, um, and it was, we had it integrated, the structure, the power, the network, the avionics, the software, and it was designed to receive samples directly into the glove box from the outside. There were three anti-chambers that cut through the bulkhead of the, of the habitat that went directly into the into the glove box uh, for sample delivery. And then it was configurable so that we could test different instruments. I'll talk about this in a little bit more detail. The hardware, um, it was modeled after the curation glove boxes. It was stainless steel and Lexan. It was designed to, to be able to withstand positive nitrogen pressure. I mentioned that the sample delivery was through the bulkhead through a series of little airlocks that we called antechambers in the back. Uh, we On the left-hand side, we had several different instrument ports where we could um, swap instruments. We see a handheld XRF. We had network cameras on either side for situational awareness. We had a pan tilt zoom network camera overhead that the back room could control for again for monitoring operations. We had a microscope um, that was a network microscope for doing detailed analysis of the samples and we had tools inside the glove box itself. Touch screens for data entry, custom software for uh, for data entry and tracking. Uh, we also tested RFID uh, tracking of samples, and the third year we had a robotic sample manipulator integrated inside the glove box. One of the most useful things the Apollo astronauts did was set out corner cube reflectors that enabled laser beams of light to be pointed at the moon and the reflection detected back here on Earth. Half a century later, those retro reflectors are still in use. From them, we have learned a lot about the moon's motion and have tested Einstein's theory of relativity. Slava Turishev is a research scientist at Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. In August of 2021, he gave a talk on the fundamental physics research that can be done on the lunar surface. In his introduction, he spoke of missions that could be conducted between 2021 and 2028. Excellent. Um, thank you very much. Um, uh, good afternoon, everyone. So to, uh, to, uh, in this presentation, uh, we will talk about uh, relevance of fundamental physics for the research on the moon, and really we'll cover uh, the science objectives and also the technologies that are being developed and will be deployed on the lunar 
surface and in lunar orbit that will enable not only the science exploration of the moon, test and fundamental physics theories, but also to enable transition to the lunar environment and then next to Mars. Excellent. So this is a little summary of what to expect in the near uh, uh, in the near time frame. So realistically, there is unprecedented number of lunar missions. We will uh, we have a significant lunar traffic with more than forty missions planned, including sixty eight uh, space vehicles, including sort of involving uh, many uh, national space agencies. It's very important to know that there is a very prominent presence of private space industry, including SpaceX, Moon Express, Astrobotics, Blue Origin, Sierra. Uh, Sierra Nevada Corporation, Mustang Space Systems, and many others. There are multiple emerging trends in cislunar activities. We have uh, a, significant, a significant emphasis on lunar surface exploration, with more than 16 missions uh, going to be uh, deploying lunar lander, rover, or both. So there is emergence of lunar relay orbiters. At least four missions are planning to deploy lunar relay orbiters to serve landed vehicles and serve as navigational beacons. There will be many CubeSat and SmallSat missions. There will be mixed uh, 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 mix of uh, crews, uh, crewed and robotic missions, both in orbit and the lunar surface. So there will be multiple commercial landers uh, to, de to deploy science instruments and technology demonstrations on the moon. There is a major technology advancement and science opportunities are expected. So there is emergence of long duration sensor networks on the moon, on the lunar surface. There is increased uh, increased interest for lunar far, uh, far side, with quite a few landers and rovers on the on 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 the rim of the South Pole and actually on 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 the, on the far side of the Moon as well. So there is opportunities for optical uh, in the near side and radio on the far side telescopes for astronomy and cosmology. So th this is very uh, interesting developments that are ongoing and uh, it's really the feel is uh, that is really going to be happening in the very near, near time frame. And really the emphasis is how do we benefit from this? What fundamental physics role in these activities and how fundamental physics will benefit from this and also how this area will contribute to the lunar exploration. Slava next explained what lunar laser ranging is. I will begin with talking about lunar laser ranging. Lunar laser ranging is a really legacy of the Apollo program. In Apollo 11, uh, uh, a deployment of uh, lunar cornucopia race in 1969, and Buzz Aldrin carrying in the, on the left uh, the uh, panel of uh, cornucopia reflectors, which were deployed on the lunar surface. And so in Apollo 11, initiated shift from analyzing lunar position angles to ranges. The present day accuracy is roughly about five millimeters limited by Earth atmosphere. You can imagine that we measure distances between Earth and the Moon to the very uh, small number, uh, less than a centimeter, which is unique. Then you see a lunar uh, uh, Apollo 11 lander, Apollo 14 corner cube reflectors, the panel panels between uh, are similar between Apollo 11 and Apollo 14, are similar uh, corner cube panels. Apollo 15 is, is a little bit larger. You see sets of corner cube reflectors on, the, on uh, Apollo 15 uh, panel. It's about 300 reflectors. They're about 3.8 centimeters. And the benefit of those corner cube reflectors is that when you shine a laser light into them, the light is being triply reflected from the edges of the corner cube. It comes back exactly in the direction it came from. So this is very useful for measuring distances, propagation distances between observatories on the moon, on, on the Earth, and the corner cube reflectors on the moon. 
within the course of Apollo 11, Apollo 14, Apollo 15 missions, and also uh, Luna 17 and Luna 21 uh, Russian missions uh, that were deploying two lunar rovers called Luna Hots. And Luna Hots uh, carried uh, French built panels of uh, corner cube reflectors. Over the years, the precision with which we arranged the moon essentially changed from roughly 20 centimeters to now less than a millim uh, less than a centimeter. And RMS residuals are at the level of roughly five, uh, 15, uh, 15 millimeters. And we need to move down to one millimeter because this, uh, this precision opens a very significant area to test fundamental physics. Laser ranging is, Cherry Shiv pointed out, very accurate. So there are multiple stations on, the, on Earth that are involved in lunar laser ranging. This is truly international community. We began the lunar laser ranging with uh, using McDonald's uh, lunar laser ranging operation. Then uh, French built uh, uh, observatory Côte d'Azur uh, joined the, four, uh, the, the, uh, the list of stations. And actually, it's a very productive station recently moved uh, from of working on green laser, now working in infrared, uh, 1064. And essentially, you see uh, that uh, Observatory Code d'Azur provided a lot of normal points in, uh, in, uh, recently in, uh, in, uh, in infrared uh, uh, band. So there are multiple other stations throughout the globe, uh, several stations in Europe and in Africa. And so many more stations are being built. This is very exciting development now because we have uh, multiple uh, activities, uh, ongoing activities on the moon and actually, actually on the ground. Uh, the uh, uh, top right chart, see, you see statistics of ranging different corner cube reflectors. As I mentioned, there are five corner cube panels. And uh, until now, uh, to 2019, uh, Apollo 15 was the most ranged reflector, and it has uh, roughly 67% of all the normal points. But after introducing uh, infrared uh, capability on, on uh, Apache, what, on observatory, observatory Côte d'Azur in 2019, this pretty, pretty much even coverage of uh, several reflectors. And so going forward, we'll expect to, to, to have uh, uh, pretty much similar coverage of those reflectors and the new ones that will be deployed on the moon. Uh, nevertheless, there are some uh, selection effects. There's uh, very few normal points uh, acquired during new moon and during full moon. So uh, in the transition, you have many more points, but really the, the challenge is actually get the data point from new moon and, and full moon, because that actually will enable us to improve the tests of general relativity and studying lunar interior. That, uh, For well over a century, scientists have been putting Einstein's theory of relativity to the test. Is his theory the final say, or could it, at some level of accuracy, prove to be incorrect? This data is uh, uh, used to make major advances in the tests of general relativity. One of the cornerstone principles in uh, general relativity is the equivalence principle. Equivalence principle states that gravity is uh, really uh, agnostic towards the uh, composition of the body. So uh, when, gra when gravity couples to, the, uh, to uh, any, any object, it should uh, be immune uh, with respect to body's composition. And so realistically, what we are doing, we are dropping the Earth and the Moon in the gravitational field of the Sun. And so if the equivalence principle is not violated, the orbit of the uh, Moon around Earth should be very well predicted. But if the equivalence principle is violated, we do expect uh, polarization in lunar orbit. And so it will, the size of this polarization will be roughly 13 meters. 
And so the two or the orbits of the two bodies, the Earth and the Moon, will deviate by 13 meters. And as I mentioned, so we measure this, uh, this orbit of the Moon with a precision of roughly 1.4 centimeters. And so we have not seen this effect. And so that enables us to test general relativity to very high precision, and especially the violation of equivalence principle recently was tested at the level of roughly 2.4 uh, times 10 to the minus 14, which is uh, the difference in accelerations uh, of uh, Earth and the Moon falling in the gravitational field of the Sun. So this is very good precision because co compared to the uh, spacecraft tests of uh, weak equivalence principle, which were recently conducted by the French-built uh, microscope mission, uh, we are reaching a similar precision in terms of uh, uh, uncertainty. So the, uh, the microscope precision is roughly t twice uh, less than the lunar laser engine, opens up, uh, opening a very significant exploration uh, area for us in the near future, because we definitely can move into this region and actually improve the precision by quite a few orders of magnitude. Strong equivalence principle, which is actually includes now not only the body composition, but actually the, uh, the contribution of gravitational energy into the strong, in, into the equivalence principle, was tested by the lunar laser range data to roughly three times ten to the four, uh, uh, three times uh, th three point four times uh, yeah, ten to the minus four, which is extremely good precision compared to the previous data. Several parameters, relativistic parameters, were tested independently, like parameter beta, which measures non-linearity of gravitational superposition. And so this is very uh, interesting parameter because uh, we are really testing the regimes at which gravity may, may fail and uh, or, or, or the general theory of relativity may, may fail because we, we are posed with very significant challenges from cosmology. For example, the, the presence of dark energy and dark matter in the universe and, the, and, and in the galaxies, spiral galaxies, alludes to the possibility of the breakdown in general relativity. So lunar laser engine can test those theories that actually were predicted to explain those uh, the, the puzzles in astrophysics and cosmology to very high precision. And so one of the recent tests of uh, possibility that gravitational constant is not a constant, but really varying with time. So the G dot over G was measured to roughly precision of 10 to the minus 14, just shy of that 10 to the minus 14. And realistically, that implies that the gravitational constant evolved le less than a tenth of a percent during the entire history of universe, which is a very strong conclusion and actually helps to improve our understanding of, of uh, cosmology on, uh, on, on various scales. So lunar laser engine is an extremely relevant experiment and should be continued because now we are benefiting not only from the instruments, but also th from the long duration of the data span that covers from 1970 all the uh, to the present and going in the future. To further test relativity, very precise measures will be required. Slava Tereshev has ideas on how to do this. So improving tests of, in improving the precision in with which we can take uh, normal points of uh, lunar, using lunar laser engine actually contributes quite significantly to our uh, tests of, uh, uh, to, our ability, to, to our ability to test general relativity. In this case, uh, even a millimeter precision which we are very close to will enable us to improve the tests of uh, weak equivalence principle, strong equivalence principle, and test uh, variability in the, in the uh, gravitational constant. But we are aiming now at 0.1 millimeter, which is possible with the technologies that are already being deployed on the moon or being developed. 
So with this, we will be definitely working in a very new regime. And so within the next five to 10 years, we should be able to approach very impressive limits with which we can test uh, possible uh, deviations from general relativity and test uh, theories for cosmology and astrophysics that were proposed to explain dark matter, dark energy, those phenomena that actually are quite puzzling. But not only that, lunar laser engine is extremely relevant to uh, conducting lunar science. With lunar laser engine, we can uh, precisely position the positions of the corner cube reflectors on the moon. And by doing that, we are studying lunar uh, interior. So we can uh, identify positions of the moon uh, of, of those reflectors to less than a centimeter level. And so low degree gravity field is being distinguished from the mantle and the core. But the most exciting part is that we are now sensing the core, the lunar core. As you know, the, the, there is a liquid core inside the moon, which is roughly 420 kilometers. And so there is a solid core inside of roughly 60 kilometers in diameter. So lunar laser engine indicates the a composition of the moon and actually will enable us to talk more to to get more data as uh, on the lunar interior and study the composition of the moon and the history of the moon which is extremely relevant to our studies of uh, other uh, celestial uh, bodies such as phobos deimos as, as if we plan to go to the uh, to, to mars so this type of research is extremely relevant but besides that lunar laser engine is very uh, is very important to establishing lunar reference frame it provides three dimensional orbit orientation of the moon and the inertial frame defined by international coordinate reference frame it uh, it allows to establish positions and uh, on the moon and navigating spacecraft around the moon which is extremely important for the upcoming activities uh, in, with, with respect to Artemis program and essentially will help to position a, a, a lunar lander on the surface to very high precision. And so lunar laser engine is uh, used to determine orbit orientation of the moon as a function of time, which is extremely important. And so anticipating an ongoing developments, we look for new corner cube uh, retroreflector instruments to be deployed on the moon with, uh, within the CLIPS program. And so not only uh, not only the passive instruments will be deployed, but also active optical transceivers will be deployed on the moon, which is extremely exciting. And also there are some uh, facilities that are being built on the moon, which uh, on the Earth, which will help us to improve tests of general relativity and to conduct studies of the lunar interior. Lasers are shone on the Apollo retroreflectors from astronomical observatories on Earth. The collecting telescopes are fitted with very sensitive photon detectors. One of the facilities that I'm, I'd like to highlight is the facility on the Table Mountain Observatory in California. We are using here uh, one kilowatt uh, laser, which is roughly 200 times more uh, br uh, more powerful than the laser the, the, that are used on uh, other facilities. With this type of instrument, we are, able, we are able to conduct very exciting research. So with the two kilowatt uh, average power, we are able to reach precision of roughly 30 micron, uh, which is differential range precision, and focusing on lunar interior. With this type of facility, we can conduct uh, studies of the, of the moon, tests of general relativity to very high precision, much better than currently possible. So by uh, switching between different corner cubes on the moon, we can we initiate a very new observable, which is difference laser engine, which is uh, limited only by Earth atmosphere to roughly 30 microns. And so now our emphasis will be on the lunar interior in addition to general relativity. So we are getting very significant flux from the uh, already uh, for, from the corner cube arrays already on the moon. We're getting roughly 
10 to the fourth photons per second. This is flux, which is quite different compared to single photon detection that is done by other stations uh, on the on Earth. Research scientist Tereshev thinks it is feasible to deliver power to the moon via laser. So uh, with the lunar laser engine, uh, that established on the Table Mountain, we are now talking about actually transmitting power to the moon. So we can deliver up to five kilowatt uh, uh, power on the moon by using high power lasers, uh, uh, arraying them in, uh, in, uh, in small arrays on, on Earth. So essentially we are thinking about uh, putting in a small array, which is roughly 50 to 100 small uh, ground-based telescopes, each of them like 30 centimeter in diameter. With this type of array, uh, array arrayed in 10 by 10, uh, uh, telescopes, we can deliver up to 5 kilowatt power, continuous power on the moon, which is quite exciting because now we can deliver power and uh, allow for multiple instruments to sustain lunar nights uh, before any nuclear power will be deployed on the moon. But lunar laser engine and essentially high power opportunities allow us to really deploy very in interesting uh, opportunities for the moon and uh, to, to allow for survival of instruments on the moon. So once power on the moon is available, we can conduct multiple other experiments, such as uh, using radio beacons on lunar landers. We can conduct the same beam interferometry and VLBI, Delta Door experiments, uh, as, as those were, were done by MIT in 1970s and JPL by, by, by the same time, looking at, uh, uh, at the radio beacons from ALSEP uh, uh, packages on the moon and, and observing them on the background of extragalactic quasars. So this is extremely powerful because this technique will allow us to reach similar precision to lunar laser engine at roughly few millimeters precision. This is a new technique that is emerging. And so also lunar radio engine, once we have uh, beacons on the moon that, is, uh, that are capable, sort of the lenders on the moon with the precise tra transponders will allow us to conduct ranging to those uh, lenders on the moon and the lunar radio ranging can be done with a few millimeters precision and essentially similar science compared to that of uh, lunar laser engine will be able to, uh, to, to, to be uh, studied. And so once we do that, essentially lunar laser engine and lunar radio engine are complementary because lunar radio engine, you can range through uh, lunar full, uh, full moon and, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, new moon. Essentially that will allow us to have a continuous coverage of lunar uh, uh, assets. So on, in addition to that, uh, same beam interferometry and inverse VLBI methods will be extremely powerful because now we have radio sources with continuous power and we should be able to reach similar, similar millimetric precisions and all of this will be helpful to study the moon, to establish reference frame for navigation and that navigation in cislunar activities. Next opportunity will be optical transceivers, which will allow us to reach even higher precision range in the moon. Optical transceivers will be deployed for communication and navigation purposes. And so the precision that we're able to reach with optical transceivers are in the, uh, the sub-millimeter and, uh, and the micron level. So this is quite, quite unique. That will be very uh, helpful for navigation and uh, and, 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 and fundamental physics. In summary, Slava Tereshev has this to say. So what is to expect in the near future? The anticipated developments, we have uh, the Kornikup arrays being deployed on the moon as NGLRs with the dark Curie being the PI. So where is a solid uh, single Kornikup is being deployed. Meistern PNT beacons, uh, uh, position navigation timing beacons will be deployed on the moon to enable early development of the radio techniques. Emerging opportunities, we have laser optical transceivers on the moon, there may be clocks on the various constellations, 
there will be high precision laser range and navigation from TMO and also powered, uh, uh, powered delivery to the ground-based arrays on, or to, to, to the arrays on the moon. That will be quite an important development. Once the power, dust, communication, thermal issues are addressed, I guess, then the astrophysics and planetary physics and heliophysics will have a renaissance uh, from the moon because we can do a lot of interesting studies in terms of planetary sciences, search for near-Earth asteroids, monitoring the entire environment around Earth, study heliophysics, uh, space weather network on the moon, and the most interesting, I think it's a far sight when we will deal with cosmology and astrophysics studying evolution of the universe in 21 centimeters because 21 centimeter radio essentially is uh, being quite polluted on the ground. But on the, on the far side of the moon, we can do a very exciting science really touching the beginning of the, uh, of the universe after, after Big Bang. So this is exciting science and we are looking for emerging opportunities and to conduct science from the lunar surface. The dangers of flammable materials in spacecraft was brought to public attention in January of 1967. That's when fire killed three astronauts rehearsing for the Apollo 1 mission. This tragedy still haunts the space industry. Tests of flames have been conducted in zero-gravity conditions on the International Space Station. But what of lunar gravity? where the field strength is 1.6 newtons per kilogram. That's one-sixth of the 9.6 experienced here on Earth. Gary Ruff is project manager of the Spacecraft Fire Safety Demonstration Unit at the Glenn Research Centre in Cleveland, Ohio. In August of 2021, he set out a plan to answer the question, how do flames spread in lunar gravity? What I'm going to be talking about in this presentation is really just some of the things that we know about, you know, flame spread, material flammability in lunar gravity. And one of the things is that for partial gravity, not meaning microgravity there, but for partial gravity levels other than Earth, you know, we've it, it received a limited amount of study and it's primarily because of what we have available for us to conduct these experiments. So I want to discuss a little bit what we've learned so far and how we're planning to explore or prepare for exploration missions to the moon and Mars. So objectives are really to, talk, to describe how do we expect flames and frame, flame spread to be different in lunar gravity than in normal gravity, and what methods can we use to investigate lunar G flammability. Obviously, the first thing, as others have said, is that you know we've got one-sixth gravity, and so the, you're going to be affecting buoyancy driving force that comes from a temperature gradient at a flame. And so that buoyant flow velocity will affect other flame parameters. And so what I wanted to do here with just some equations, I want to make some statements about how we would expect flames to be different. So if you're looking at the buoyant velocity and you know, apply some approximations and assuming for right now that the flame temperature is not affected by gravity changes, you can use uh, conservation equations and get this expression for the buoyant velocity. And when you put in just that gravity difference of 0.16 g, you get that the lunar velocity, lunar buoyant velocity, would be on the order of 0.4 buoyant velocity on the Earth. Now, that contributes to other differences in the flame and start looking at things like a flame standoff distance that shows the, the standoff distance definition just by how far the flame is from a fabric sample. This is a concurrent flame, and that distance is proportional to the boundary layer thickness. And if you continue to work all that through, 
you find that it depends upon the buoyancy and pressure. And you can do the same thing with heat flux from, uh, from the solid flame to a solid and work that through in here. Then that temperature very difference um, comes into play. The concurrent flame spread rate, you know, kind of the same, the same way. And the convective heat transfer coefficient. You know, modeling has shown that these pictures, that rather than collecting on the ceiling, you really have to raise the entire cabin up to the alarm level. But then when you've got partial gravity, yeah, now you've got... Uh, buoyancy, so the smoke would want to go towards the surface, but there's also where do you put the air intake so that maybe you can remove dust particles. So depending upon the rate of smoke generation and the, the, the competition between buoyancy and ECLIS rate, you could be defeating your fire detection purpose. Obviously, don't have a whole lot of data at partial gravity because of the lack of test um, platforms. You know, it indicates that theory and experimental results, oxygen flammability limits in lunar G are, are lower than those in 1G, and the configurations that will not support a flame in low gravity could support a flame in lunar gravity. The percent oxygens for planned atmospheres exacerbates all of these issues by enhancing flammability, and initial additional work is needed. Lunar gravity can change the fire detection strategy, and of course, one thing I didn't really touch on much, but obviously if you um, turning off the ECLIS flow to extinguish a fire in Lunar G isn't effective because you still have buoyancy. So you're still going to have some effect of drawing oxygen into the flame. And so that's gonna be a, uh, you're gonna have to look at that in uh, fire suppression. And we are working um, now to quantify the magnitude of the delta percent oxygen and a combination, using a combination of mod modeling low-gravity aircraft, drop tower centrifuge, rotating capsule to start to answer some of these questions. Flames and lunar gravity is just one of many areas where there are gaps in lunar research. Francis Cheramonte is Program Scientist for Physical Sciences in the Biological and Physical Sciences Division at NASA Headquarters. In August of 2021, she advocated some transformative research that could be done if we fill some priority knowledge gaps. In this division and in this directorate, there's a focus on something called transformative research. We have two major areas that we're going to pursue, but I thought I'd just introduce that topic a little bit here and, and maybe help with people to, uh, to understand what that might mean. So very simply put, it's the research that we're looking to do is challenging current understanding, all right, and providing pathways to new frontiers. So I know in general, people will intrinsically say, well, research, you know, often does challenge current understanding. That's probably why we're doing it. I think the focus might be that look for ways to do bigger impact, ways that can be most effective, just to give you that broad drop. Okay, and then so as mentioned before, but I like to kind of put a spin on it here. The major way to look at the moon and so such a wonderful, unique opportunity coming up is two ways. One, NASA and its international partners and industry are going back to the moon, as, as I, I imagine all of you know. And so part of the goals of the workshop is for all of us to help identify challenges and knowledge gaps and help in that way and participate in trying to close some of those gaps and enable us to go to the moon, right? So, but, but the, the trick is not so much in the technology. There are sister groups at NASA that will handle 
developing machinery and excavating uh, uh, lunar regolith and building habitats and roads and landing pads. So that that's not us. We're the group behind that that is looking at if there are research areas and opportunities on the moon to help enable that exploration, missing understanding about the material properties of some new lunar binder or cement perhaps that needs to be developed. What is the optimal composition? Um, and how did we arrive at that? And how does microgravity play a role? And any of the other, for that matter, any of the other variables play a role such as temperature or radiation. That's how we can be productive here is simply to look at it from a research of sort of an applied research perspective on helping to fill the gaps behind the technology that needs to be developed. The other way to look at the, the moon is just, it's just like another laboratory. So instead of having a lab at your university or institution, now all of a sudden this, this satellite itself is in a laboratory and it's yours to dream uh, with and, and develop ideas. All right, and those ideas can be, be due to its unique microgravity environment, the vacuum, right? The temperature, huge temperature swings, the radiation, you know, as it goes around the, the earth and, and the whole system goes around the sun and you're getting that radiation and there's, because there's, you know, there's no atmosphere, it's, it's uniquely different radiation than what we experience here on earth. And the fact that we have a magnetic field it's just a new testbed or a new platform for just pure science, right? Not about exploration, not about putting people on it. It's a laboratory and it's yours.